Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Thursday, January 25th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Teresa Whitaker and Scott Splavik. Here's our first story. Iowa State Auditor. Davenport City Employees, Settlements Under Review. This is by Sarah Watson. Following a request from a city elected official, the state auditor's office is reviewing the city of Davenport's settlements with three former employees. The settlements include the city paying $1.6 million to its now former city administrator, Corey Spiegel, in lieu of a harassment lawsuit, an agreement that was signed and consented to by the council a month before the November 2023 election, wasn't released until just before Thanksgiving, and wasn't voted on in public until the final meeting before the end of the year. A good audit goes where the facts lead, Iowa Auditor Rob Sands said. We have the authority and the legal ability to conduct a review, and where that review goes is going to depend on what we learn while we're doing it. Sands' office has already requested some records, he said, and would continue to make necessary requests. We're going to look at the facts and circumstances surrounding the settlement, the process that led to the settlement, the basis for the settlement, then whether or not rules or laws were violated in that process, as well as reviews of other aspects of it that might come to light while we're working on our investigation, he said. The qualifying request came from a city elected official and was received by Sands' office December 28th. There are three mechanisms that can trigger an auditor's office review. Requests by an elected official, an employee of the jurisdiction, or via a petition with 100 signatures. The elected official who made the request expressed several concerns, according to an auditor's office spokesperson, among them the process and timing of settlement agreements reached with three former city employees and the potential violation of open meetings laws. Sand declined to say who made the request, citing his office's protections for whistleblowers. Davenport Corporate Counsel Brian Hare did not immediately respond to a request for comment Wednesday regarding the auditor's review. Sand also said his office had not yet received a qualifying request in regards to the May 28th building collapse at 324 Main Street. In an article from Davenport, Council Mull's Code of Conduct. This is written by Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Following a tumultuous year in which the city of Davenport paid three employees close to $2 million for claims of harassment by elected officials, the city council expressed support Tuesday afternoon for a yet-to-be-drafted code of conduct meant to curb inappropriate council member behavior. Mayor Mike Matson also asked for feedback on meeting procedure and indicated he may make some changes to limit public comment or how the city live streams its meetings. Alderman didn't discuss many details of what could be included in a code of conduct. Several expressed support for hiring an outside professional to advise the city council on a code of conduct and forming a committee to produce a draft. I would want something in a code of conduct that not only outlines what is expected of elected officials, which quite frankly most of it should be common sense, you should be professional, you should have courteous actions for your fellow alder persons and with the public, first term at-large alderman Jasmine Newton said, but unfortunately we have seen that that's not the case, so we should have something that makes it clear what is expected and that has proverbial teeth 
of what happens when such is violated. I do not think that it should fall on staff to monitor the conduct of elected officials. Just before Thanksgiving, the city council would separate with its top administrator, Corey Spiegel, pay her $1.6 million in lieu of, her, of a harassment lawsuit. The agreement was signed a month before the election, but not made public until afterward. An unsigned statement from the city council said Spiegel faced behavior from current and former elected officials that was inappropriate and wrong and urged future councils to adopt a code of conduct for members early on in their terms. In January, the new council was sworn in. Of the 10 council members, five are new. Council members on Tuesday discussed ways to enforce a code of conduct. At-large alderman Kyle Grip cited a chapter of city code that allows the council to dock a council member's pay if they're deemed to be absent from meetings without reasonable excuses. Also, the charter of the city states the council can determine the rules of proceedings, punish members for contemptuous or disorderly conduct, and with two-thirds of the elected council, expel a member. In a rare move this past fall, the city council voted to do just that. In September, the then council voted 7-3 to remove former 7th Ward Alderman Derek Cornett on allegations of harassing city staff and intoxication during meetings. Cornett has argued that he was unfairly maligned because of his council votes. Under state law, the city council, by two-thirds majority, can remove a council member following a hearing on written charges for any of eight reasons. Refusal to perform duties of the office, willful misconduct, corruption, extortion, conviction of a felony, intoxication, violating campaign finance laws, and or failing to pay a fine for election misconduct. Cornette has sued the city for wrongful removal, with his attorney Mike Malloy arguing that Cornette wasn't given enough time to prepare a legal defense before his removal hearing and that his due process rights were violated. A judge overruled the council's decision to remove Cornette, citing that the council did not provide a written explanation of its reasoning for the decision. The city has appealed the case. Cornette lost his bid for re-election this fall. Though Grip didn't mention Cornette or other council members by name, when he said poor behavior arose the previous year, the council felt as if it was limited to doing two things, publicly admonishing a council member, or, if actions rose to a certain level, removal. I feel like the council used the tools that were at its disposal, Grip said, so I just want to know if there are other tools and other ways. I think that's something the subgroup needs to really look at is the actual teeth of it. Newly elected 8th Ward Alderman Paul Reinertz, Jr., cautioned the council to guard against penalties being misused against political foes or spurred by personal dislikes. Several other council members acknowledged or agreed with the concern. Third Ward Alderman Marion McGinnis argued urged the council to enforce any code among itself and not rely on city staff to try to corral elected officials. The burdens that ended up on staff enforcing it because we didn't deal, we really didn't deal with it as council until it came to one particular situation, McGinnis said. 
We need to be, as a council, very, very, very aware of the imbalance of power, McGinnis said. Council members debated limiting public comment during meetings and how and whether to continue live-streaming meetings to the city's website, citing concerns for republishing potentially defamatory comments. Ultimately, Matson said he will make the decision on meeting protocols, but said he wanted feedback from the city council. At least two aldermen said they wanted the city to quit live-streaming its meetings altogether and instead upload the council videos after editing out what the city deemed to be defamatory comments. Others suggested the council live-stream its meetings but quit once the meeting reaches the general public comment section. Other suggestions included <clears throat> limiting public comment from live from five minutes to three minutes, requiring speakers to sign up ahead of the meeting to speak and require them to produce ID to prove they live in Davenport. In the past eight months, public comment has been tense. Speakers have been harshly critical of the city and city officials, alleging wrongdoing in the collapse of the downtown Davenport apartment building at, one, at 324 Main Street or on other topics. Some read from documents, emails, and articles or, or reference previous conversations with a specific official. Several times, Matson was interrupted to warn a speaker not to make personal attacks or name names of officials and instead directed their comments to the council as a body. Occasionally, officials have voted to adjourn meetings to interrupt comments they see as inappropriate. Randy Evans, executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, called it unwise for the city to try to stifle citizen criticism. The policy changes the city is contemplating would not violate Iowa's public meetings law because the law allows government boards to place restriction on people who are attending those meetings, Evans said, but it certainly seems unwise for the city to try to stifle citizen criticism of their local government, especially in the wake of a lawsuit that raises important questions whether city officials were disregarding the requirements of city policies and state law leading up to the departure of the city administrator and two administrative assistants. A lawsuit was filed earlier this month asking a Scott County court to declare that the city broke open meetings when the council did not, at first, bring employee settlements to, the public, to a public vote. Some council members and city legal staff said they were concerned someone could sue the city for republishing potentially defamatory comments and videos of the meetings on its website. Determining what is defamation can be difficult, Davenport Corporate Counsel Brian Hayer said. The question and decision for the council is, do we want to be in that position, he said. I can tell you, sitting here sometimes as someone who has been practicing law for 30 years, it's really tough to tell when somebody, they tiptoe the line. Have they crossed over the line? It's tough. Oftentimes, they probably sound like they have, but it's really more than manner of how they've spoken is the issue. McGinnis said, I would hate that the people of Davenport would not be able to, in their homes, watch the city council or committee of the whole uh, meetings live. It is unreasonable to expect people within a 57-square-mile city to be able to come to a meeting, and there are a number of people who do watch it live.
So the idea of not airing it live sends chills up my spine. McGinnis added that the burden of deciding what was defamatory comment and editing the videos would fall onto staff, which she said could be seen as a political act by some. Hayer said the city was not required to record the, its meetings, but it is the city's standard practice to do so. The city is required to provide a written record of the meeting with minutes with meeting minutes. On other issues of public comment, opinions on the council were mixed. Some expressed an openness to limiting public comment from five to three minutes. Others did not want to take away minutes from the public. By law, people have a right to attend public meetings and to record public meetings themselves. According to the Iowa Public Information Board, city councils are not required to hold public comment during meetings, though mo almost all do. According to an informational handout prepared by city staff comparing Davenport to 11 other cities, public comment protocols, Davenport is one of five cities of 12 that allow five-minute time limit. Other cities allow three- or two-minute length comments. Des Moines allows city residents, property owners, or taxpayers to comment. Dubuque allows city residents to comment. The other 10 cities allow anyone from the public to speak. Four of the 12 cities require the public to sign up before the council meeting in order to speak, and a fifth, Moline, encourages but doesn't require speakers to sign up ahead of time. Bullies beware. Taekwondo teacher aims to teach life skills, lesson bullying. This is an article by Olivia Allen. Taekwondo Grandmaster Doug Fusel grew up during a time of ample discrimination attending high school in the 1960s. He spent the past 49 years teaching people how to build confidence, discover their self-identities, and defend themselves, specifically through the art of Taekwondo. Starting Saturday, he'll bring that training to Quad City students via three bully-proof outs. Out, outreach seminars. These free events, each from 6 to 8 p.m. at Trinity Church in Rock Island, are open to local junior high and high school students. Fusel is one of several Taekwondo practitioners worldwide to hold the title of Grand Master. He is also former president of the United States Taekwondo Committee. He and his wife Heather, a Quad Cities native, moved to Hampton, Illinois in June. The pair opened U.S. Taekwondo Center Quad Cities, USTCQC, at TBK Bank Sports Complex in Bettendorf shortly after, teaching corporate, group, and private lessons. Each of the Saturday seminars will focus on teaching positive life skills such as confidence, self-purpose, compassion, and control, and Taekwondo self-defense skills. We're going to have fun and we're going to learn some cool stuff, Fuchsia said. We're going to give you problem-solving scenarios and ways to get yourself out of a bad situation and how you can avoid that altogether. We're going to do that mentally and physically. Seminars are limited to 50 participants, each focusing on different Taekwondo fundamentals and mental wellness strategies. Food will also be provided. All registrants must sign a liability waiver to participate, and those under 18 must complete a parent permission slip. Long before becoming an internationally acclaimed martial artist, Fuchsia was once a long-haired teen in Riverton, Wyoming. 
I never liked seeing people getting picked on, he said. I didn't want people to take or be taken advantage of, harassed or whatever, you know. That was just a common kind of theme. Growing up on the Wind River Indian Reservation, he recalls many instances of discrimination against his Native American peers, even facing some himself. My hair touched my ears, and you couldn't go out for sports if your hair touched your ears or collar. Those were just things going on at that time, Fuchsel said, adding he would be called names for having his long hair. While he categorizes this as straight-up discrimination, prejudice, and bigotry, he said these examples aren't far from bullying. It's sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, Fuchsel said. Well, that's not true at all. Words are really powerful, and they impact you positively or negatively. The local library is where Fuchsel first stumbled into the world of martial arts. Weed, he and his friends, would check out books and try to do judo and just throw each other around, he said with a laugh. Since there weren't any martial arts programs in town, though, Fuchsel decided to join fencing instead. That is, up until college. On his first day, Fusil went to see Robert Klaus's 1973 film, Enter the Dragon, starring Bruce Lee with his roommate. I was like, I'm doing this, he said. They had a class offered at the student union on the bulletin board. Long story short, Fusil spent the next year in Seoul, Korea, training for his black belt under sponsorship from the Korean Taekwondo Association. I came back to the U.S. and said, this is what I want to do, and my parents were like, no, you need to go back to college, he said. So he did, starting the University of Wyoming's first Dojang School of Taekwondo, but for Fusil, it wasn't enough. I came across an ad in a black belt magazine that said, if you are a black belt and know how to teach, but you don't know how to run a business, call us, he said. I called them. After several consultations with the American Taekwondo Association, the ATA, who put up the ad, Fusil later opened a full-time dojang in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1976. While discrimination may be less explicit nowadays, the rise of social media, and thus cyberbullying, prompted Fusil to take action, launching Bully Proof Outreach in 2010. Regardless of how someone experiences bullying, Fuchsel said developing a strong self-identity is a common solution. This directly links to what he considers three core tenets of humanity, safety, validation, and relationships. If groups, people, accept us, they validate us, and we have relationship with them, then we want to belong to that group. Good, bad, or indifferent, Fuchsel said. If you've been bullied, you're looking for someone or a group to be kind of to kind of say, no, you're okay, it's okay. By offering a positive outlet for people to navigate these tenets, Fusil aims to help others find the truth, identity, ownership, character validation, and relationship safety. This framework, he said, may be particularly beneficial for teens and young adults. You're supposed to be growing up and there are a lot of unknowns out there, Fusil said. If somebody starts bullying you, it can be really, really difficult. Many of his students grow their confidence within the first couple of months of starting Taekwondo. While students may start by building confidence in their Taekwondo skills, it often goes far beyond the dojang. That confidence starts playing into your whole mental attitude towards schoolwork, life, your after-school time, family, Fuchsel said. All of a sudden, you're taking a different stance. That's the win-win. Confidence, he said, is the first step toward identifying one's truth. When you find out your identity, or purpose, and that you matter, those give you a level of confidence, Fuchsel said. 
We've had a lot of success with kids finding ownership in that, and that's the takeaway. These are just skills to advance you in life. He shared the story of a former student, Danny, who began Taekwondo at age 14, shortly after losing his father to suicide. He, Danny, walked on eggshells because he never knew when things were going to explode around him, Fuchsel said. Now Danny is married with two children and is vice president of a bank. He also touts a four-star black belt, having earned the title of master in Taekwondo. He was picked on. He was that nerd guy, Fuchsel said. Now you know he's a rock star martial artist and he's got great skill set in life. Preceding the bullying outreach program was USTCQC's first seminar series, Fear Not, which focused on rape protection and prevention. Fear has torment and it twists everything, Fuchsel said, using the example of rape victims' tendency to experience disassociative amnesia. Fear can have a chokehold on you and so our goal is to break those chokeholds. By developing one's confidence, compassion, mercy, and self-control via Taekwondo, he hopes to show students the opposite end of the spectrum. If people come to all three seminars, they're going to get three different perspectives on ways to validate who they are, Fuchsel said, of the upcoming bullying outreach events. For questions about the upcoming Bully Proof Outreach Seminars, call 970-319-8313. Dinkins pleads guilty to drug charge. This is written by Teresa Geyer of the Quad City Times. Henry Earl Dinkins pleaded guilty to a federal drug charge during a hearing Wednesday in U.S. District Court, Davenport. Dinkins, age 51, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to distribute a controlled substance, methamphetamine, during a change of plea hearing before Magistrate Stephen Jackson, Jr., in a separate case in September of 2023, Dinkins was convicted of murder and kidnapping in the first degree in connection with the death of 10-year-old Briasia Terrell. The plea agreement, which was accepted by federal prosecutors, stipulates Dinkins will serve the minimum prison sentence of 10 years on the charge. It will be up to Chief U.S. District Judge Stephanie Rose to accept that 10-year sentence when Dinkins is sentenced on May 15th. If Rose approves the 10-year sentence, she can either have the sentence run consecutive to the life sentence Dinkins is serving in Iowa for the kidnapping and murder of Terrell, or concurrent to that sentence. Consecutive means that the sentences will run back-to-back, -back, while concurrent means they will be served at the same time. If Rose does not accept the 10-year sentence, then the plea agreement will become void and the case will proceed to trial. A second charge of distribution of a controlled substance methamphetamine will be dropped if Rose accepts the sentence outlined in the plea agreement. Dinkins admitted that he was part of a conspiracy to distribute more than 500 grams or 1.1 pounds of meth in the Quad City region. The federal case against Dinkins stemmed from a drug trafficking investigation initiated by the Scott County Sheriff's Office. The investigation included evidence from a traffic stop on Interstate 80 in Illinois on April 20, the 5th, 2019, and evidence from a controlled buy on September the 23rd, 2019, according to electronic records from the U.S. District Court, Davenport. During the traffic stop in Bureau County, Illinois, 
a probable cause search of the Ford Econoline van in which Dinkins was a passenger was conducted by the two Illinois State Troopers. The search yielded three gallon-sized Ziploc bags full of methamphetamine pills. One single purple tablet resembling the same pills in the bags was also found beneath a third-row seat. Dinkins and the driver, Craig Davis Sims, age 25, were arrested. On October the 7th, 2021, then Bureau County State's Attorney Gino Caffarini decided not to prosecute Davis Sims pursuant to an appellate court decision and the case was dismissed according to electronic records of Bureau County Circuit Court. On January 17th, Dinkins' attorney, Jack Dustheimer, attempted to have the evidence from the Illinois traffic stop suppressed. Rose denied that motion on January the 19th. Out of Henry County Circuit Court, the Dalen Richardson trial, rulings issued favor prosecution. It's an article by Lisa Hammer out of Cambridge. Circuit Judge Norma Kozlerich on Tuesday issued rulings in favor of the prosecution in the pending murder trial of a Granite City man for the death of Knox County De- Deputy Nicholas Weist on April 29, 2022. Dalen K. Richardson, 24, is set to go on trial before a Henry County jury the week of February 26. Kozlerich ruled the state could amend the charges with the appropriate language required for a natural life sentence instead of 20 to 60 years. She also ruled the state can introduce evidence of Richardson firing shots at Knox County deputies who were pursuing him on U.S. Highway 150. Richardson's attorney, Bruce Carmen had argued that because Richardson has already pleaded guilty to the counts involving being a felon in possession of a firearm and aggravated fleeing and eluding, there was no longer an argument as to the course of conduct contained in the charges, and therefore the prejudice against the defendant outweighed the probative value of testimony or evidence presented by the state. Kozlerich noted other crimes evidence is not admissible simply to show propensity to commit a crime, but it is admissible for any reason other than propensity, for example, to show motive. The evidence sought may go to motive, and at the very least, it is part of the continuing narrative of the events of that day and as to the state of mind of all of the actors involved in those days' events, wrote the judge. The probative value far outweighs any prejudicial effect in this matter. For the, for the foregoing reasons, the court is denying reconsideration of its previous ruling, and the evidence and testimony of the shots fired is allowed to be introduced at trial. In the second matter, Kozlerich noted the state indicated the penalty was natural life on the charging documents, but the penalty for conviction of murder without any enhancement factor existing at the time of the offense is 20 to 60 years in prison. She further stated the enhancement factor needs to be spelled out in the charging instrument or otherwise provided to the defendant through written notification before trial. She stated in Richardson's case, the charge did not contain any aggravating factor other than while fleeing from the police in a motor vehicle. The state is given leave to file amended charges with appropriate language, she concluded. According to prior court testimony, Richardson led Knox County deputies on a chase that went into Henry County after he was seen with a gun at a Galesburg gas station. Weiss was killed as he put out stop sticks on U.S. Highway 150, which were successful in stopping Richardson. A couple of short articles, Grant to Improve Seven Parks. 
In early December, Kelowna received word that the city was eligible for a $300,000 state grant for seven of its eight city parks. State Senator Mike Halpin attended Monday's city council meeting to announce the grant, which was made possible from surplus funds. The money is coming from the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, but Halpern said he did not know when it would arrive. Work on the grant began a little over a year ago when former Kelowna Economic Development Director Rich Holman appealed to Halpin for any possible funds for aging and declining parks. The parks grant will cover a pickleball court at Ty Massey Park, as well as painting and maintenance of existing buildings at various parks. Other improvements include dugouts and bleachers at the ballparks and fencing, signage, playground equipment, park benches, and landscaping at Ty Massey, 8th Street, Old Kelowna, Greenwood, Sullivan, and Hughes Camp Parks. And grant given for residence hall renovation. This is at Augustana College. Augustana College received a nearly $6.7 million state grant to complete renovations at Erickson Residence Center. The Illinois Board of Higher Education awarded a total of $400 million in independent colleges capital investment grants, with Augie being one of 45 recipients. These grants help fund the construction, repair, and renovation of campus infrastructure at private, not-for-profit colleges and universities in Illinois also aiming to close equity gaps. Each applicant had to submit a copy of their institution's equity plan to be considered for the grant. The IBHE grant will fully fund Erickson's first phase of renovations estimated to cost $5.6 million. According to the Federation of Independent Illinois Colleges and Universities, private schools enroll 25% of Illinois college students, yet produce 42% of all bachelor's and 64% of all master's degrees. Combined economic impact of Illinois' independent colleges and universities is more than $21 billion, according to a 2021 FIICU report. You are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we're going to turn to today's obituaries. Jerry Aubrey, 80, died peacefully with his family by his side on January 22nd after a 17-year battle with Alzheimer's disease. Jerry was, bo- was born May 6, 1943, to Alan and Alberta Aubrey in Muscatine. He had five siblings. He graduated in the class of 1961 from Muscatine High School. It was there he met the love of his life, Dee Dee Longhurst. Jerry joined the Naval Reserves while attending high school and entered active duty in 1962, deployed on the USS Albany CG-10. While on leave, he married Dee Dee on June 6, 1964. They settled in Davenport, Iowa, where they built a wonderful family. Together, they had five beautiful daughters. He took immense pride in his role as a girl dad, giving countless hugs and encouragement to the end. He retired from his beloved job at the Rock Island Arsenal in 2004. His greatest achievements were his wife of nearly 60 years, five daughters, 13 grandchildren, and eight great-grandchildren. Visitation will be held at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport, Iowa on Monday, January 29th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. with Rosary Prayed at 6.45 p.m. There will be an additional visitation at church on Tuesday from 9.30 a.m. until the time of the Mass. 
The funeral mass of Christian burial will be held at St. John Vianney Catholic Church in Bettendorf on Tuesday, January 30th at 10.30 a.m. His grandsons will serve as pallbearers. Jerry will be laid to rest at the Rock Island National Cemetery, Arsenal Island, with military honors. Barbara Ann Van Heift, V-A-N-H-Y-F-T-E, 73, passed away from her earthly paradise to her heavenly paradise on January 14th at Kona Community Hospital in Kona, Hawaii. A massive Christian burial will be held at 12 p.m. on Saturday, January 27th at St. Malachi Catholic Church. Burial will follow at St. Anthony Catholic Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. on Saturday at the church, followed by a rosary. Barbara was born December 28, 1950, in Gen- at Geneseo. She graduated from Anawan High School, class of 1969. She received her art education from Mary Crest College in Davenport in 1972 and her master's in management from the Florida Institute of Technology in 1985. She served as an extension advisor in Rock Island County after graduation from Marycrest. She worked at John Deere, where she held supervisory positions for the majority of her 30-year career until retiring in 2005. She also worked at Schnook's Grocery Store until it closed and the Walgreens until her death. Leon Fierbach, 90, of Davenport, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd at the Davenport Lutheran Home. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 27th at St. Paul Lutheran Church, 2136 Brady Street in Davenport. Visitation will be held from 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Private inurnment will be held at a later date in the St. Paul Memorial Garden. Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island is assisting, assisting Leon's family with arrangements. Leon was born August 11, 1933, in Davenport, a son of Lloyd and Alice Hewer Fuerbach. He married Deanna F. Sievers on May 4, 1957, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Davenport. Mr. Fuerbach graduated from Durant High School and attended St. Ambrose College. He later graduated from the University of Wisconsin School of Banking. Leon served as vice president of the Walcott Trust and Savings Bank, retiring in 2013. He also served as a director on the bank's board of directors. He was a longtime member of St. Paul Lutheran Church. Left, uh, Leon was preceded. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Okay. Darlene Dar J. Hansen, 90, passed away Saturday, January 13th at Davenport Lutheran Care Home. Dar had formerly resided for 72 years in her family home on High Street in Davenport. Dar was born December 1, 1933, in Davenport to Edith L. Doty and Arthur L. Hansen. She graduated from Davenport High School in 1952, where she competed in the 1952 National Softball Tournament. She was also a gifted athlete in other sports, shooting a hole-in-one and bowling perfect games with her championship team, along with being an accomplished organist and a talented ceramicist. Her positive sunny outlook fueled her 37-year career with the Davenport Park Board, where she developed and managed sports and cultural programs like youth theater, softball, swimming, volleyball, bowling, golf, tennis, and children's summer camps. She was instrumental in the creation of Davenport's first senior center, Collins House, and taught ceramics as a volunteer for decades at CASI, where she also served on the board of directors. J. 
Uh, Gary John <clears throat> Rolfus, 76 of Clinton, passed away on Monday, January 22nd at Mercy One in Clinton. A massive Christian burial will be at 1.30 p.m. Saturday, January 27th at Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Clinton with a luncheon to follow immediately. Visitation will be held Friday, January 26th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Prince of Peace. Gary was born on November 7th, 1947 to Aloysius Al and Kathleen Rolfus in Lamars. After graduating from St. Edmunds High School in Fort Dodge in 1965, he went on to study economics and accounting at the University of Iowa. While attending St. Ed's, Gary met the love of his life, Carmen. They wed in 1969 in Fort Dodge as Gary was enlisting in the Army. With a stroke of luck, Gary was sent to Germany, and he and Carmen had many stories of their travels around Europe. After returning from Germany and then graduating from the University of Iowa, Gary attended John Marshall Law School in Chicago. He and Carmen settled in Clinton after he landed his first job. Gary later went into private practice with the Mayor Lonergan and Rolfus Law Office. Gary and Carmen went on to have two daughters, Annie and Sarah, who are their pride and joy. Gary was known for his caring nature, his love of family and friends, his sense of humor, and his dedication to his faith. Family meant more to him than anything else in the world. Continuing on with the obituaries, uh, Patricia M. Ware, a massive Christian burial for Patricia M. Ware, age 82, of Bentendorf, will be 10 a.m. Saturday, January the 27th at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Davenport. Burial will be at Mount Calvary Cemetery, Davenport. Visitation will be Saturday from 9 a.m. until the time of the Mass of Christ at the Cathedral. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Sacred Heart Cathedral. Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home is assisting the family with arrangements. Pat died unexpectedly January the 23rd, 2024. Uh, she was born on February 23rd, 1941 in Green Bay, Wisconsin, a daughter of Paul and Pearl F. Snell. She graduated from Immaculate Conception Academy in 1958 and later from Mercy Hospital School of Nursing and St. Ambrose. She married Edward Ned Ware on September 16, 1972 at Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church. She retired in 1991 from Mercy Hospital as the head nurse slash supervisor of the operating room. She was a faithful member of Sacred Heart Cathedral, was always on the go. She loved to bike and play golf, achieving a hole-in-one in Florida. She also was a self-taught, talented seamstress and loved her canine companion, Kimmy. Online condolences may be expressed by visiting www.hmdfuneralhome.com. Next, Jan Janet Mar Marie Gerke, who passed away on January the 20th, 2024. Uh, let's see, she was born February 22nd, 21st, 1949. Embraced a life dedicated to compassion, family, and service. She worked as an insurance professional on July 18th, 1975. She was united in marriage with the love of her life, Lauren Wakeman with whom she raised three children. Family was the cornerstone of Janet's joy, and she 
and Lauren created a lifetime of memories camping and vacationing together. They also found joy in traveling with close friends and creating lasting memories. Her creative spirit found expression in her love for crochet, creating beautiful afghans and baby blankets that became cherished gifts for family and friends. In June of 2019, Janet faced the challenges of frontemporal degeneration, finding comfort and care at the Iowa Masonic Home. She appreciated the support and engaging activities provided by the staff during her time there. On January 20th, 2024, she passed away peacefully with her family by her side. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Monday, January the 29th at Corin uh, Deo Bible Church. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. She will be laid to rest beside her husband in Davenport Memorial Park. In honor of Janet's memory, the family kindly requests donations to the Association of Frontotemporal Degeneration through the www.theftd.org. As we remember Janet, let us celebrate a life well lived, marked by love, kindness, and the enduring connections she forged with those fortunate enough to share in her journey. May she rest in peace. And finally, James G. Lawyer, age 83, of Grand Mound, Iowa, who died Sunday, January the 21st, at Genesis Medical Center in DeWitt following a brief illness. A memorial visitation will be held March 16th, 2024 from 2 to 4 p.m. with a service following at 4 p.m. at Grand Schultz Funeral Home in Grand Mound. James was born May 19, 1940 in Indianola, Iowa to Earl and Violet Lawyer, graduated from Mercer High School and served one term in the U.S. Navy. He worked for John Deere for 30 years, retiring in 1993, married Paul Pamela Gustafson on June 5, 1993, enjoying 30 years of marriage. After retirement, he stayed active, working for the city of Grand Mound in maintenance, then moving to Lineville, where he worked for Westview Nursing Home in Leon and later running a landscaping business. Arrangements are in the care of Schultz Funeral Home, Grand Mound. Condolences may be expressed at www.schultzfuneralhomes.com. Okay, now we're going to turn to today's opinion section. This column sounds interesting. How I Broke the Spell to Live Free Without a Smartphone. This is by Seth Lavin. About three months ago, I bought a flip phone and turned off my smartphone for good. I am part of a trend. Interest in old-fashioned flip phones is up, but I don't feel trendy. When I flip my phone open in a hallway of the middle school, where I'm the principal, one student literally makes the sign of the cross. Another just says, oh no. Another asks, why did you put yourself on punishment? But I do not feel punished, I feel free. Kids and their phones are different, closer, since COVID. That first year back after the pandemic, one child clocked 17 hours of scream time in a single day. Another tried to have Uber Eats delivered to a classroom. Teachers said they could sense kids' phones distracting them from inside their pockets. We banned phones outright, equipping classrooms with lockboxes that the kids call cell phone prisons. It's not perfect, but it's better. 
A teacher said, it's like we have the children back. At school, yes, but what about everywhere else? Chicago's Compass Health Center has a child screen dependence program to help children learn to tolerate periods of screen separation. A Pennsylvania phone addiction camp promises to help young people rediscover who they really are. And what about adults? 95% of young adults now keep their phones nearby every waking hour, according to a Gallup survey, and 92% do when they sleep. We look at our phones on average of 352 times a day, according to one recent survey, almost four times more often than before COVID. We want children off their phones because we want them to be present, but children need our presence too. When we are on our phones, we are somewhere else. Our after-school director told me, I just want parents to be off their phones at pickup. I just want them to look up for that one moment when their kids first see them. I average six hours of screen time a day on my smartphone. My 12-year-old son said, I called your name three times and you didn't hear me. My 10-year-old son said, I can tell you are looking at your phone by the sound of your voice. I made my screen gray. I deleted social media. I bought a lockbox and said I would keep my phone there. I didn't. When they were little, my sons loved to play a game in which they would hide under the covers while I wondered aloud, where is he? Then they would throw off the blankets and yell, here I am. I was here the whole time. How much of their lives have I missed while looking at my screen? Every year I see kids get phones and disappear into them. I don't want that to happen to mine. I don't want that to have happened to me. So I quit. And now I have this flip phone. What I don't have is FaceTime or Instagram. I can't use Grubhub or Lyft or the Starbucks mobile app. I don't even have a browser. I drove to a student's quinceanera and I had to print out directions as if it were 2002. My eight-year-old niece poked at my screen with her finger, which does nothing, and looked at me with such pity. You have the most boring phone of all time, she said. I can still make calls, though. People are startled to get one. I can still text, and I can still see your pictures, though I can heart them only in my heart. The magic of smartphones is that they eliminate friction. Touchscreens, auto-playing videos, endless scrolling. My phone isn't smooth. That breaks the spell. Turning off my smartphone didn't fix all my problems, but I do notice my brain moving more deliberately, shifting less abruptly between moods. I am bored more, sure, the day feels longer, but I am deciding that's a good thing. And I am still connected to the people I love. They just can't text me TikToks. It's hard to imagine a revolution against the smartphone, though there are glimmers of resistance. The attorneys general of California and 32 other states are suing Meta, alleging its Facebook and Instagram platforms have addicted children to something harmful. 12% of adults recently told Gallup their smartphones make life worse, up from 6% in 2015. But I'm not doing this to change the culture. I'm doing this because I don't want my sons to remember me lost in my phone. Last month, we went to buy their mom a birthday present. We took a bus across the city as the sun set. It was nearing wintertime, and lights were in the trees. We talked the whole way. In the store, one of them got turned around and called out my name. Here I am, I said. I was here the whole time. That was good. Now it's time to move on to sports in our last 10 minutes or so of our broadcast. We'll start with what's on TV today. College men's basketball, 4 p.m., Elon at Campbell on CBS Sports Network. Also 4 p.m., Central Connecticut at Fairleigh Dickinson on ESPNU. 6 p.m., UMKC at South Dakota State on CBS Sports Network. 
SMU at North Texas State on ESPN2, Fort Wayne at Northern Kentucky on ESPNU. Those are at all at 6 p.m. 8 p.m., New Mexico State at Sam Houston State on CBS Sports Network, San Francisco at Gonzaga on ESPN2, Western Illinois at Southern Indiana on ESPNU, and Arizona State at Oregon on the Pac-12 Network. 10 p.m., you can catch Pacific at St. Mary's of California on CBS Sports Network. Also at 10 p.m., you can catch Oregon State, um, Arizona at Oregon State, sorry, on the Pac-12 Network. College women's basketball, 5 p.m., Florida State at Duke on the ACC Network. 6 p.m., it's Ohio State at Illinois on Peacock. 7 p.m., Miami at North Carolina on the ACC Network, Penn State at Northwestern on the Big Ten Network, and South Carolina at LSU on ESPN. Those are all 7 p.m. games. 8 p.m., we've got Texas A&M at Missouri. That's on SEC Network. Uh, Okay. A little bit of a printing mistake there in the paper. Anyway, uh, NBA, 6.30, Boston at Miami on TNT. And 9 p.m., Sacramento at Golden State on TNT. 9.30 p.m., Chicago at L.A. Lakers on the NBC Chicago Sports Channel. And in the NHL at 8 p.m., Chicago at Edmonton on the NBC Chicago Sports Channel Plus. And we'll grab one article here quick. Memorable win for bees. St. Ambrose knocks off ranked team. This is written by Tom Johnston. It was a memorable win for everyone in the St. Ambrose University men's basketball program Wednesday evening. Under the guidance of associate head coach Jim Kiss, the bees battled for a huge 92-84 Chicagoland Collegiate Athletic Conference victory over the NAIA's 22nd-ranked Olivet Nazarene Tigers on Leo Kilfoy Court inside Lee Loman Arena. SAU won their fourth straight and fifth in their last six starts to move into a tie for second place in the league with Indiana South Bend. And the Fighting Bees did it with head coach Ray... Chauvelin? Yeah, Chauvelin. At home, trying to follow a hit-and-miss live stream and tracking live stats online. I'd much rather be there, said Chauvelin via phone after the contest. Sidelined after taking a fall in an icy parking lot last Friday, it may have been easier for Slovain to have been at home. SAU held the lead for the final 27-plus minutes of the contest, but it got dicey late in the game. Missing 7 of 11 free throws in an 8-minute stretch allowed the Tigers to stay in the game. However, the Bees made 9 of 10 charity tosses in the final 1 minute and 13 seconds to finally ice the victory. I always liked the ball in my hands, said senior Will Springs, who hit 5 of 6 late tosses to help the Bees remain contenders in the league behind Roosevelt. Springs finished with a team-high 20 points leading five Bs in double-digit scoring. This is huge, said Spriggs of the victory. It's Olivet Hate Week. Me and fellow senior guard Jake Friel have never beat them until tonight. 
Friel was another of the B's in double figures, finishing with 12 points. Junior Adam Agat, a transfer who prepped at United Township, tossed in 19 for SAU off the bench. Starters Grant Mason and Ignacio DeCunda added 14 and 13, respectively. SAU built a 75-61 lead with 6 minutes and 30 seconds left in regulation after Spriggs hit a triple. However, ONU cut the deficit to just 5, 78-73 with 2.43 left as Friel hit a bucket and later split free throws. With things getting tight, Agat hit a driving layup and Spriggs followed with a steal and a coast-to-coast layup after the steal that made it 82-73. Even from his house, Chauvelin was still in coach mode. I thought there were times when we shot the ball too quickly, said the 40-year-old SAU boss, and we had too many fouls. The Bees turned turned 15 ONU turnovers into 23 points, picking up critical fast-break points. The players were really focused from the start, said Kiss. We had really good energy and good effort. We kept telling them that it would be a game of runs and that we just have to stay together. You could tell there was no panic. That's the way it's been in the last five or six games. Okay, I'll read a few local briefs. Bots named Umpire of the Year. Davenport's Mike Bots was named the Umpire of the Year at the IHS BCA Banquet on January 20th in Cedar Rapids. Botts was one of five finalists for the award. Pleasant Valley's Derek Steckling was the 4A Southeast District Coach of the Year, and PV's Mitch Lawson was the Southeast District's nominee for Assistant Coach of the Year. Earning service awards were Jake Serrata, 25 years, of Wilton, and Troy Wolf, 10 years, from West Liberty. Davenport's Mike Bartling was named the Harold Pinky Primrose Award winner. St. Ambrose's Stubbler places fourth at PBA event. Former St. Ambrose University bowler Nate Stubbler placed fourth at last week's PBA Players Championship in Wichita, Kansas. The left-hander from LaSalle, Illinois, claimed $30,000 for the fourth-place finish, falling 224 to 220 to Ryan Barnes in the stepladder finals. Stubbler from LaSalle, Illinois, was one of five finalists last season for the PBA's Rookie of the Year Award and Augie Swimmer Leslie honored. Augustana's Tyler Leslie has been named the CCIW Swimmer of the Week. Leslie won the 500 in 4 minutes 41.30 seconds and the 100 freestyles in 46.52 seconds at the Grinnell Invitational last Friday. He also anchored the 200 freestyle relay with a PR split of 20.96. Leslie, a sophomore from Aurora, Illinois, has the top times in the 200 and 500 freeze in the CCIW this season. That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Teresa Whitaker, and my partner at the microphone has been Scott Splavik. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smartphone, excuse me, smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.